And we know that this kind of low grade, silent inflammation, if you will, which is not really serving a purpose in terms of defending us from a pathogen or taking care of abnormal cells. It's just kind of there all the time. Um, it's really setting the stage for a lot of chronic diseases like diabetes has an inflammation component, heart disease, even cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, so many chronic diseases that are a big disease burden today have this kind of inflammation component as a root cause. So anything we can do to manage this, you have to really hit it from all sides. But I think incorporating foods like, you know, peppers or things with the capsaicin compound and, and other in anti-inflammatory spices, like we talked about, you know, sumac, turmeric, um, it's just a really nice insurance against really what is kind of a reality of modern times. Like it's hard to avoid. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Sheetal Shah talks with Kanchan Koya, food as medicine practitioner, health coach, and founder of Spice Spice Baby, about the benefits of different spices and the science behind them. Hope you enjoy it. to this episode of That's So Hindu, HAF's podcast. I am here this evening with Kanchan Koya, founder of Spice Spice Baby, her platform dedicated to shedding light on the healing potential of spices, demystifying them for a global audience and inspiring their use in food for the whole family. Her Spice Spice Baby cookbook was the first self-published book to be featured on the Today Show. Kanchan is part of the creators program at BuzzFeed Tasty, creating recipes for their global audience. I should also mention that Kunshan has a doctorate in molecular biology from the Harvard Medical School and training from the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. Kunshan, it is a pleasure to chat with you this evening. As we were just discussing, as a mother of a four-year-old, I am always trying to find creative and inventive ways to get a variety of spices into my son's diet. So I am particularly excited about chatting with you this evening. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to be here. Awesome. Well, you know, of course, being of Indian descent, like so many of the folks who listen to us and growing up in a household where Indian food was an everyday staple, a lot of us were pretty accustomed to spices like turmeric and cumin, coriander, and of course, a variety of chili. Um, but tonight, I wanted to turn to some of the spices that have incredible benefits, but aren't commonly found in an Indian kitchen. and. As we had talked about before, one of my favorite non-Indian spices is sumac. And I love to throw it on salads whenever I get a chance, but it is not something that you're traditionally gonna find in an Indian kitchen. I actually don't think my mom has ever used sumac. Um, so I'd love to like chat with you a little bit more about the background of sumac, where it comes from, the health benefits, and how, how we can use it in our everyday food. Yeah, you know, I uh, posted uh, something on Instagram a few months ago where I said the Indian spice box is pretty perfect. But if there was one spice that I would say was missing from it that I wish was part of it, it would be sumac. And I would say that the closest that we have to sumac is amchur, which is the dry mango powder that some people use, which is amazing. But yeah, you know, sumac is just from a different part of the world. So I think it just never found its way into the Indian spice box because so much of kind of the spices we use has to do with 
where they're sourced from, where they grow naturally. And sumac naturally grows in the Middle East. Um, it's part of a bush. It's a, it's kind of a berry from a bush that is picked and dried and powdered. And it has this beautiful wine colored kind of purple hue. And the flavor is literally like amchur, like lemon tang, but with a bit more depth, almost like a deep red wine. So anytime you want to add kind of lemon notes to a dish or like finish a salad, like you said, you know, with kind of that tart, like sort of lip smacking um, flavor, sumac is just such an awesome go-to. And, you know, anytime in the plant kingdom that you encounter this purple pigment, like whether it's eggplant or blueberries, um, you can, you can basically, you know, be assured that you're encountering a really potent plant molecule that is really good for your health. So the purple pigment in sumac and other purple plants, vegetables, fruits, comes from a compound called anthocyanin. And actually, that was one of the reasons I got really interested in sumac. I mean, flavor aside, which honestly is a pretty compelling reason in and of itself. But these anthocyanins are powerful antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds, really good for brain and heart health and even cancer prevention. So adding a spice like sumac to kind of daily rotation is really a win-win from a flavor standpoint plus a health boosting standpoint. So could you, I mean, effectively replace Amchur with sumac? You know, I've done it because I'll be honest, it's hard to find Amchur in New York City unless I go to like Little India or I order online. So sometimes I run out. And the other thing with Amchur and maybe, you know, it's just me, but I find that it doesn't last very long. Like it tends to clump up pretty quickly and it has like a pretty short lived shelf life. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a young mango that's been dried and powdered. Right. So, um, I mean, thinking about it is kind of making me salivate. I love Amchur. But yeah, if you don't have Amchur or you want, you can even combine them because I really think they're a little bit different. Amchur is like very in your face tart and sumac has like the tartness, but also the depth. So it's just a slightly different flavor profile. You can definitely swap them and you can even combine them. Okay. And are there any, um, any kind of anti-inflammatory benefits that go along with sumac? Absolutely. So it's one of the top um, anti-inflammatory spices along with turmeric and the chili pepper, black pepper, you know, cinnamon. So it's definitely up there. And I think that's why it would be such a valuable addition to the Indian kitchen. Um, Because, I mean, maybe we'll talk about it, but like chronic low-grade inflammation is definitely an issue, not just in India, but in all modern societies. And I, I think the more we can add plant-based foods that really help us fight this kind of unwanted inflammation, the better off we're going to be. You know, from an Ayurvedic perspective, different spices have obviously different effects on our body. Some are very heating, some are very cooling. Um, some are kind of three doshic and, and can go for the three doshas. Do you happen to know where sumac falls amongst the, that those categories? Yeah. So I spoke with an Ayurvedic chef about this and she said, you know, I, uh, Sumac is not integral to the Indian kitchen, so it hasn't really been studied in Ayurveda, but just based on the flavor profile, which is like sour, tangy, it would be considered kind of a little bit aggravating for the pitta dosha, which generally tends to 
not do well with too much kind of sour um, and acidic foods. You know, I'm predominantly pitta and of course I gravitate towards all the things I'm not supposed to gravitate towards. So I love sumac and chili, which I'm supposed to moderate. But yeah, I would say it's probably really good for kapha and vata and maybe with pitta, you have to kind of use it in moderation. That, um, that sounds like my husband. He is total pitta and give him chili, give him vinegar, <laughs> you know, yeah. anything that's sour and spicy, he'll go right there. Yeah. Like attracts like, but as they say in Ayurveda, you want to kind of watch that because you want balance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It's tough sometimes. Tough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so another, um, another spice that we quickly uh, touched upon in an earlier conversation was paprika. It happens to be one of my favorite spices. And shockingly, my four-year-old really likes paprika. Um, but again, not something that um, is traditionally found in the Indian spice box. So let's talk a little bit about paprika. Yeah. You know, I always recommend paprika as a starter spice for kids because it is so inoffensive. It's basically a red pepper that's been dried and powdered down. And you can have like a few different treatments. You can smoke it, which is smoked paprika, or you can just use it as is, which is sweet paprika. And then you can use like a spicier variety, which would be a hot paprika, which is actually quite rare. So I think paprika is really a wonderful addition because, you know, and we talked about this, I mean, Indian spice box, the Indian spice box always has a chili pepper, right? Like um, a spicy, red chili pepper. And as you know, I literally have a problem and put that on everything. Sometimes even when it doesn't belong there, um, I'm definitely like carrying hot sauce in my bag and using it at Italian restaurants. And my husband is like, Oh, please stop. But you know, can't help myself. But paprika is amazing. If you're somebody that loves chili peppers and you love like those you know, varied notes because chili doesn't just have a hot flavor profile. It also has like sour, sweet. If you pay attention, you know, there's a lot going on with the chili pepper. Paprika has all that minus the heat. So it adds a lot of flavor without the heat, which I think is great for people who can't tolerate that much heat. You know, we were just saying pitta, like sometimes you can, you can overdo the spicy spices, right? And then it aggravates like your intestinal lining, your GI tract. We do have some evidence from the science that too much chili pepper can cause ulcers or heartburn. So for people who love that flavor profile, but they're not able to handle chili right now because they're having some of these GI or gastrointestinal issues, I think paprika is a really nice substitute. It's also a really great way to get kids kind of dipping their toe into that chili pepper family without that like in your face heat. So, and it also goes with everything. You can put it in a lot of things. And the first time I encountered it, to be honest, in Indian cooking was when I was making a Goan dish. So because Goa has the Portuguese influence, you know, from our colonial past, some Goan dishes actually use paprika because paprika is very prevalent in like Spain and Portugal. So I was like, oh, that's interesting, you know, a curry with paprika. So you can definitely add it to add more color and more depth and nuance without the heat, even to Indian food. Amazing. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And I'm always happy to douse it on my son's food. Uh, and he just, he, he likes the color. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so what sort of, uh, what are the health benefits that are associated with paprika? 
Yeah, so much like the chili uh, pepper family, which we enjoy in Indian cooking, obviously, you know, all these chili peppers have a compound or related compound um, called capsaicin. And capsaicin has been looked at in many different contexts, again, as an inflammation fighter. So, you know, we want inflammation at the right time at the right place. It's part of our immune response. It allows us to defend ourselves against invading pathogens or, you know, um, precancerous cells. Like inflammation is not a bad thing in and of itself. The problem is the modern day exposure to a lot of like strange substances in our food supply, stress, you know, altered gut health. So many things have basically caused our bodies to kind of go into this like hyper inflamed, chronically inflamed state. And we know that this kind of low grade, silent inflammation, if you will, which is not really serving a purpose in terms of defending us from a pathogen or taking care of abnormal cells. It's just kind of there all the time. Um, It's really setting the stage for a lot of chronic diseases like diabetes has an inflammation component, heart disease, even cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, so many chronic diseases that are a big disease burden today have this kind of inflammation component as a root cause. So anything we can do to manage this, you have to really hit it from all sides. But I think incorporating foods like, you know, peppers or things with the capsaicin compound and and other in anti-inflammatory spices, like we talked about, you know, sumac, turmeric, um, it's just a really nice insurance against really what is kind of a reality of modern times. Like it's hard to avoid. Um, there was a recent study. So, you know, a lot of this for a long time was very hand wavy, like, oh, we've done studies in test tube settings or in certain like animal models, looking at these spices and inflammation. But there was actually a study that came out just last month Um, And it was a randomized controlled trial in people, which is really like the ultimate study. And it showed that if you take somebody and you give them a high fat, high carbohydrate meal, like a refined carbohydrate, high fat junkie meal, basically, which we know causes inflammation after the meal. But instead of just giving them the meal alone, you give them a spice blend that has a lot of these spices. There was paprika, cumin, coriander, thyme, like so many different spices in that blend, about a tablespoon of spice in the dish which is not that hard if you think of Indian cooking, like you easily have a tablespoon in a dish. There were significantly lowered markers of inflammation um, that were measurable in the blood after that meal. And that was, I think, really, really important and really exciting for the field because now it's saying, oh, this isn't just true like in in an isolated study, like it's actually working in people. So I think if we can just add more spice for flavor, for managing inflammation, you know, I just really just do see it as a win-win. Just going back to that study, you mentioned that it was a spice blend. Is there any particular reason that they chose those that, that combination of spices um, as opposed to just testing out individual spices? It, it might be too detailed, but in case you happen to know. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think uh, so. it was done at a Penn State um, University. And I think the rationale that they outlined in the paper was that they used a blend incorporating spices that they feel are common spices used in the United States. Hmm. So it wouldn't be asking someone to go and find like some exotic spices. So there was there was turmeric in the blend. There was paprika. There was thyme. There was oregano, bay leaf, black pepper, cinnamon. It was quite an interesting blend. <laughs> My guess is that they wanted to see an effect. You know, they probably had a hypothesis that 
they're going to see an effect and they wanted to boost their chances of seeing a measurable effect. And so throwing all these spices into a blend was probably something that made sense for them from like getting the right data standpoint. I mean, I don't know that I would eat those spices in that combination, but I think you can definitely take away the fact that, you know, a lot of different spices are good. More is better. And yeah, I mean, this can have a real effect in real time, you know, after a single meal. Great. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Now this kind of transitions really well to the next point of more is better. I think we had talked about how sometimes with certain spices, more is not always better. Um, one example would be nutmeg. Um, it's not very commonly used in Indian cooking, but you know, certainly here in the U.S. around the holiday times, it's a very popular spice and, you know, it, a very small amount goes a long way in terms of taste, in terms of um, flavor, and, and just in terms of the aroma. Um, you know, I, I love it. My son loves it. It's probably a very easy spice for children. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are probably some concerns with overuse of, of nutmeg. Yeah, so nutmeg is used, like we discussed, um, in some families' version of garam masala, which is a typical Indian blend, but not all families use nutmeg that often. And you're right, it is kind of reserved for the holidays. Nutmeg is one of those spices where I would say it does have benefits, but we're probably better off using less because interestingly, it has a bit of a dark history. So back in the day, it used to be abused as a recreational drug, believe it or not, because in high enough quantities, and you're talking pretty high, so like you have to ingest like you have to literally ingest two tablespoons of nutmeg, which I don't think most people would do. Um, and that can cause like some unpleasant side effects, like hallucinations, palpitations, and just like weird, you know, a weird feeling, nausea. So don't overdo the nutmeg, basically. I also like to err on the side of caution and not give my kids like too much nutmeg. I'll definitely grate it into like a butternut squash soup or, you know, um, if I'm making some kind of dessert around the holidays, like holiday cookies or something. But I'm not going to go overboard with the nutmeg because it does have this like weird sort of dark side, if you will. <laughs> and then the other spice, which we didn't talk about, but really quick, like black pepper is interesting because it has a lot of benefits too, but it also has a compound that at very high doses may be cancer promoting. So I like to use it in culinary amounts, totally fine. But anytime you're going to start making like a concentrated tea or something, I would stay away from nutmeg and pepper when it comes to like really concentrated teas. Oh, okay. That's good to know. But yeah, so I don't want to totally end nutmeg on such a yeah note. <laughs> negative so maybe note. We I know. Talk about some of the benefits of using it occasionally. Yeah. So again, it has anti-inflammatory powers, like a lot of different spices. That's one of the most um, well-known. And then also it can help calm and upset stomach and it can help with nausea. A lot of people have like a nutmeg tea or try to have some nutmeg a little bit if they're feeling like off or nauseous. Um, so it definitely has some benefits and I think it's really wonderful. The good thing about it is it really does go like a little bit goes a long way. You know, you just, I always like to use the whole nutmeg seed and then grate it on a microplane into whatever you're using. Um, and it just adds this amazing complexity. Um, so yeah, you don't have to use that much to get like the beautiful flavor out. Is there a benefit to the seed versus just the powder? 
Yeah, so that's a great question in general. You know, anytime you have a whole spice, like a whole nutmeg seed or like the whole coriander seed versus the powder, you're technically always better off starting with a seed, grinding it down fresh into a powder that you would use and then using it. Because anytime you grind the whole spice down into a powder, you've activated a lot of the volatile compounds. And that's a good thing because you want that flavor, but they're going to start to deteriorate in terms of flavor, aroma, and potentially even benefits over time. So I really like to, this is why all our parents or moms, you know, used to take their little batch of whole cumin seeds and grind them fresh and then use it up within like three to six months or even faster maybe. Um, so there is a benefit to kind of using small batches of ground spice and keeping the whole spice for longer, like that lasts much longer than the ground spice. It's not that the spice is going to go bad. It's not that the ground nutmeg is bad. It's just not going to be as potent as if you take the whole seed and grind it fresh. Sure. That may, makes sense. Um, so, I mean, when you talk about nutmeg, you all have to talk about cinnamon because they just yeah. they, they go hand in hand. Match made in heaven. Yeah. Like eggnog. I don't really like eggnog to be honest, but I know people do that whole like holiday situation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in my household, cinnamon is an all year spice because we're oatmeal lovers. And so it definitely gets put into the oatmeal quite regularly. It also gets sprinkled on top of, you know, toast and and all sorts of things. Um, so let's, let's delve a little bit into cinnamon because, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it tends to be, I mean, in some Indian spice boxes, but it's not, it's not super common. It's not. I mean, it's used um, in North Indian cooking, I think in like rice, like in Palau. Um, You know, it's definitely a component in garam masala. Some meat dishes might use it in the North. Um, It's used occasionally, but like, yeah, not that often, not something like turmeric or cumin, you know, I think it should be used more often because it does have some incredible benefits. And I think benefits that are really relevant to the Indian community. So we know that cinnamon has um, cinnamaldehyde, which is a compound that can help boost insulin function. And insulin is a hormone that we produce in response to carbohydrates. It helps our cells take up glucose and it helps when it's functioning properly, everything is good. When it's not functioning, functioning properly, you're setting the stage for like pre-diabetes, diabetes. You know, India has a huge epidemic, I would say now, of type 2 diabetes, um, and maybe there are some genetic reasons for that, but also like when you combine those genetics with the modern Indian lifestyle, especially in India itself, um, you're really seeing this massive surge in, in kind of um, the diabetes burden. So cinnamon um, has the ability to rebalance blood sugar. And the beautiful thing about cinnamon is it can do that in culinary amounts. So you know, small studies, but provocative, interesting studies have shown that just like half a teaspoon of cinnamon a day for three months can help reduce your blood sugar levels and help insulin function better. Now, that's a great thing. But the really important thing to note is that there are two kinds of cinnamon in the world, right? There's the regular cinnamon, which is part of the Indian spice box and the cinnamon that you most commonly find on store shelves, on spice racks, and it's called cassia cinnamon. It's the same as Vietnamese cinnamon or Saigon cinnamon, the Indian traditional cinnamon, all of that is the cassia variety. And then there's another kind called true cinnamon or Ceylon cinnamon for the fact that because of the fact that it comes from Ceylon or Sri Lanka, right? And the reason we want to pay attention to those two types is because the traditional cassia cinnamon 
has a compound called coumarin, which at high enough doses can cause liver toxicity. Um, True cinnamon or Ceylon cinnamon has almost immeasurable, negligible amounts of coumarin. So if you're using cinnamon routinely, say to manage your blood sugar or just to boost your health, like putting it in your oatmeal every day or on your fruit or whatever, or in your smoothie, I really recommend that people go a little bit out of their way to find true cinnamon or Ceylon cinnamon, just to avoid that potential hazard of too much coumarin in their diet. And luckily now you can find this Sri Lankan true cinnamon, like even at Whole Foods. Hmm. Um, I've seen it at a bunch of different places. And if not just Amazon, you can just go to Amazon and type in true cinnamon or Ceylon cinnamon, that's C-E-Y-L-O-N, and just get your stash. And you can feel good that you're getting all the benefits without any potential side effects. Okay. That's good to know. I'm going to have to go find that now. (laughs) Yeah, it's worth it. really is. Okay. Great. Well, I want to transition to something that's probably not a spice, um, but that is just really not within the Indian palate in the, you know, the Indian spice box or just it's not Indian, you know, at all. Um, seaweed, you know, it, it can yeah. be mixed into different blends. Uh, you know, obviously there's sushi, but, you know, not talking about it in that sense, but as in whether it's mixed into spice blends or, you know, now you can even get like seaweed snacks, um, all sorts of things. So there's, you know, a, a myriad of benefits to, to seaweed. It has a very distinct flavor, which may turn certain people off, but um, let's, let's talk about about that a little bit. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. You know, um, I every time we talk about seaweed, I, I think of my parents. They live in India still, and they just don't like anything that comes from the sea. I mean, they do eat fish occasionally, but they don't like fishy things. They don't like fishy fish. The fish should not taste like fish. Then it's okay. If it tastes like fish, it's too fishy. And seaweed tastes like fish because it tastes like the ocean. Like, I don't know. I feel like we Indians have this... Like we connect the ocean salty taste with like fishy and it's very off-putting and it's interesting, right? Because like some cultures really celebrate that flavor. So anyway, um, yeah, like seaweed ground down into a powder, like something like kelp or even, even like seaweed mixed into like a blend that we were talking about called furikake, which is like a Japanese blend, which has sesame seeds and seaweed and salt and you know, um, has become quite a trend, I would say, in culinary circles. And I think the reason is because seaweed, because of that salty note, it really lends like an umami flavor to a lot of dishes. So if you're someone that is trying to cut back on your meat consumption, or you're trying to become vegetarian, or you're trying to just eat less meat, seaweed, ground seaweed in your dishes is a great way to add a lot of those umami notes that people who eat meat find very irresistible. Um, to a vegetarian dish. So I really like to recommend it to people who are, you know, trying to just eat less meat or get off the meat train. And then we know that seaweed has iodine, which, you know, interestingly, um, as a society, we have become, we're pretty okay on iodine because much of the commercial salt that's available is iodized salt. But what's happening now is people are going out of their way to buy more gourmet salts, right? Like the sea salt or like the kosher salt or Malden finishing salt or whatever salt, which is non-iodized. And actually, we might be now 
you know, reducing our iodine that's coming in through the diet and causing somewhat of an iodine deficiency. Um, it can affect your thyroid function if you don't have enough iodine. So sea vegetables are a great way to get iodine, like outside of iodized salt. Um, and they also have like selenium and other beneficial, you know, compounds for health. So also for thyroid function, which results in more energy and just like better metabolism. So I really like to use it um, for those reasons, you know, just to make sure we're getting enough iodine because we're definitely using the fancy sea salt that's not iodized. And also to add that depth of flavor, even if you're not looking for umami because you miss meat, even if you're fully vegetarian, it really does add this complexity. Once it's dissolved into a dish, like a stew, you don't taste that ocean taste. It's it, That just kind of melts away. Even if you sprinkle it on a salad or mix it with some olive oil, it really is almost like adding like garlic or, you know, some kind of um, very nuanced umami note. Um, so I think we should embrace it more because it has health benefits and it's got a really cool flavor profile. Are there any benefits? Because you mentioned multiple ways of, of using seaweed. Are there any benefits in terms of whether you're using it um, cooked versus uncooked? Not that I know of. So the iodine and the selenium would not be affected by cooking. So I think whatever you like, you know, if you want to sprinkle it raw on a salad, go for it. If you want to add it to a stew so that it's a little bit more masked, go for it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I really, um, the furikake is a fantastic blend. And when it's blended properly and you just use a little sprinkling of it, that there is no kind of fishy or seaweedy or, or oceany flavor to it. It just all melds very well together. Uh, yeah, my favorite way of doing it was actually just putting it on an avocado toast. Um, oh, so good. Yeah, it came out fantastic. <laughs> With some chili flakes. There you because, go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the other aspect of spices is obviously, um, you know, the myriad of benefits and how much you use and how frequently you're using them, then the other angle of it is how you're preparing them um, with your foods and the oils that you're using um, to prepare your foods and whether you're putting, you know, putting the spices in the oils, whether you're putting them at the end, I think that there's probably, you know, um, different implications um, for how they react with your body. And obviously the types of oils that you're using um, have, have a huge impact on, on our health. So, you know, there has recently been a lot of conversations about oils that are best suited for high heat or medium heat or low heat. And there was a lot of back and forth about, um, you know, olive oil became incredibly popular and people were using it all the time. And then it kind of came out that, well, this is not maybe the best for, you know, the highest heat cooking, um, it can cause a lot of problems. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the kinds of oils that you think are beneficial to people um, when they're cooking at high, medium and low heats. And then also in terms of just not cooking and putting on a salad. I love this question so much. I honestly feel really passionate about oils because, you know, if you're a home cook, you're using oils in pretty much every meal, maybe not in breakfast, but maybe in breakfast, depending on what you're eating. So if you're going to think about something that you want to pay attention to, oils are really up there because of the frequency with which you use them, right? So they can really impact your health positively or negatively. So yeah, oils, um, 
you know, can really differ depending on the source. So let's just talk about olive oil for a second. So olive oil for a long time was used a lot, like you said, and then got a bad rap because people said, oh, it's not good at high heat. Now, for it is true that olive oil has a lower smoke point. So at about, depending on the olive oil, I'm going to say 400 Fahrenheit is when it is thought to start to smoke. And this is thought to be an undesirable thing because once an oil reaches its smoke point, it starts to get converted by oxidation into these byproducts that we call lipid for fat, peroxidation for oxidation byproducts. And all oils do that. The thing about olive oil that's really interesting is if it's a good olive oil, and we can talk about how to tell if it's a good olive oil, if it's a good olive oil that is pure, that has a lot of the beneficial compounds in it, which make it healthy, those compounds actually protect the oil from getting converted into these um, nasty byproducts at high heat. So if you go to long-lived cultures that live around the Mediterranean, they are cooking with olive oil at high heat because their olive oil is literally olives from the tree pressed into an oil. That's it, right? Now, the olive oil that you get in the US really depends on the brand. And one way to tell if you're really getting good olive oil versus maybe not even olive oil or olive oil that's been you know mixed in with some other neutral oil because olive oil is expensive and it's cheaper for a brand to kind of infuse it with like canola oil or some carrier oil and sell it as olive oil. And there's been reports that that is a thing that happens. You want to be able to smell like a peppery note on the olive oil. So when you smell the oil, it should smell kind of sharp and peppery. When you taste it, even if you taste it a little bit, it should kind of hit the back of your throat with, again, this peppery note. And that is because of a compound in the oil called oleocanthal, which is a very powerful, again, back to inflammation, anti-inflammatory compound. And a lot of studies around olive oil and benefits attribute the benefits to these compounds in olive oil. So you want that kind of, you don't want the olive oil to be incredibly smooth and like for you to not even taste it because at that point it probably isn't olive oil, you know? So if you're using this kind of correct olive oil that has the peppery bite that hits the back of your throat, you have some leeway when it comes to cooking with it. In an ideal world, you don't want to cook with it over 400 Fahrenheit. So once you're over 400 Fahrenheit, I like to use avocado oil, or if you like it, then ghee, which is like a traditional Indian cooking fat, because these fats are both incredibly stable at high heat. Unfortunately, a lot of us Indians, non-Indians use these refined nut and seed oils for high heat cooking, like canola oil, rapeseed oil, rapeseed oil, sunflower oil, soybean oil, probably the worst. Um, a lot of these oils have been industrially processed and refined using organic solvents, solvents like hexane, which you really don't want to be ingesting. That's number one. Secondly, the fats in these oils are polyunsaturated fats, particularly a kind called omega-6 fat. And omega-6 fat is a fat that we need. It's an essential kind of fatty acid. We need omega-3s. We need omega-6s. But the problem with modern society is we're getting so much omega-6 from these refined oils and we're not getting enough omega-3 because either people don't eat fish or if they're vegetarian, they're not paying attention to their omega-3 intake. And it's really important that we have enough omega-3. And if we have too much omega-6, 
not enough omega-3, again, we're going to be more prone to damaging inflammation. So I really like to avoid cooking with these omega-6 rich oils in my house because I know that I get enough of them when I eat out. When you're eating out at a restaurant, you can pretty much assume you're getting some sort of canola, if you're lucky, sunflower. Sunflower is definitely the least problematic because it's often expeller pressed, which means it's not derived using this like weird hexane solvent, right? Mm -hmm. So um, canola oil is often contains hexane. It's also GMO and might have like other things like glyphosate, which is, you know, um, desiccant that's used in GMO, GMO crops. So I just like to avoid those oils because I, I like to use avocado oil for high heat. It's an incredibly neutral flavor and works really well with Indian cooking. My mom was like, what are you cooking with? <laughs> and then I was like, see, it works because, you know, it's just a mindset shift. Um, ghee, you know, if you like ghee, that's, that's actually a good source at high heat. And then for medium to low heat, I would use avocado oil or olive oil. Coconut oil, again, became a big fad and everybody thought it was like the best thing ever. At the end of the day, it is a saturated fat. Yeah. And saturated fat for many people is... Um, you know, a high risk factor for heart disease, another problem with Indians, right? So I like to use coconut oil in moderation if I use it. I don't like to use it all the time. Um, it's nice in certain desserts or like certain curries where you want to elevate that coconut flavor, but I wouldn't make it your staple oil. So just to summarize, I would say avocado oil for high heat or ghee, olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil for kind of medium heat, coconut oil really in moderation. And on salads, of course, it's hard to beat olive oil. Well, because I have a four-year-old who loves butter, I have to ask your opinion on yeah. butter and cooking with butter. Where does that fit into the scheme of things? It's a really interesting question. And you can find a lot of different studies depending on what you want to believe. I think at the end of the day, butter is a saturated fat, right? And so even ghee is saturated fat and like a little bit goes a long way. You know, when you add your spices to your ghee and we should talk about why it's nice to have a fat with spices because that was your original question. But, um, you know, just think of fat as like, like a little bit goes a long way. It is a calorie dense food. You know, a gram of fat has nine calories, a gram of carbohydrate and protein has four calories. So you really want to just be mindful that you are ingesting more calories anytime you ingest fat. Um, so a little bit goes a long way. Butter, I mean, we use butter. I would say if you're going to use butter for certain things, like try to find grass-fed butter because it seems like the fat profile in grass-fed butter is healthier. Um, it's a more natural butter because cows are supposed to graze on grass, not on like the weird stuff that they're fed in industrial farming, you know? So yeah, grass-fed butter in moderation could be okay. Um, again, just like less is more, you know, um, it goes a long way. And we want to use these fats with, with spices. So something that I just think is amazing is that our ancestors, you know, in India knew that spices should be infused in oil as the first step in a dish. 
culinary term for it is blooming the spice. And any Indian knows, you know, we have the chalk or the tarka or whatever you call it, like um, in, depending on where you're from in India, right? You put your cumin seeds, your turmeric in the oil, you let it sort of sizzle, then you add your vegetables or you add that to something. There's a reason for that. We know that a lot of the compounds in spices that have benefits get activated when they're exposed to fat. So I just find it amazing that our great, great grannies knew to do that. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> turmeric, we know the, the compound in turmeric that's very beneficial is more bioavailable when it's combined with fat. So you definitely want to use the fat with spices. It's a great step. There's a reason for it, but you don't have to like go overboard um, with the amount of fat that you use. Is that, I mean, is that across the board on all spices? Because it's not like, you know, if I'm making oatmeal, I'm not like, putting, you know, oil and then adding cinnamon before I make my oatmeal. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. No, you can definitely get benefits without adding the fat. I think certain spices like turmeric, we know really needs the fat to activate the curcumin, but in, in other cases you don't have to. And this is a great point because what I like to do just because we also don't understand every compound and every spice yet. We haven't kind of got to that point. So what I like to do again is go back to the grannies, right? So in my house growing up, we would use the spices as we cook the dish. So we would add it to the oil. We would add the vegetables or the lentils or whatever we would cook it. And then my mom would always finish like the dal or whatever dish with a sprinkling of the raw spice on top, you know, kind of like a garnish. And again, I think there's a rationale to that because now what you're doing is you're allowing yourself to access the flavor and the benefits of a cooked spice and a raw version of that same spice. So I always like to finish my dishes with the same spice that I used in the cooked format, but now raw on top just to kind of reinforce the flavor, but also potentially get some benefits that might have been lost with cooking. So just kind of going back to like the traditional methods, you know, I think there's, uh, they're really cool because there may be a rationale to them. Yeah, I think so many of, of those traditional methods have rationales. And over the years, it's just kind of become the way we do things. And we may have forgotten why we do them in a particular way. And, you know, I remember my, my mother would be teaching me, you know, if you're making green beans, you have to use this particular spice. And if you're doing potatoes, you use this particular spice. And, yeah, you know, there wasn't always the understanding of the science behind it, but she just intuitively knew. Like this is what yes. goes with this. And it had just been passed down for so long. And at some point, you know, probably from the Ayurvedic background, it got passed down and it's just been passed down from generation to generation. And, you know, I hope it continues. I feel like people are starting to maybe, as we've kind of come over here, starting to lose that um, that connection and trying to mix and match spices, which I mean, I think is, is fine too. But there was really there was really some science behind why it was done in that particular way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I love that you brought that point up about like passing down the wisdom. And I hope we can continue that now that we're like parents of young kids or, you know, it, it is so important. Um, and that intuitive knowledge just always blows my mind because we're finding more and more that the science is validating that yeah. intuition. So I'm always like, how did they know? It's, it's amazing, amazing, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, great. I think, you know, kind of those are all the questions uh, that I had. I mean, I could go on for a really long time about, about a variety of things. We can always do this again. But I just one last question for you. Just curious, what's next for you? Is there another cookbook coming out or is there another platform coming out? Um, where are you headed? Yeah, you know, um, definitely another book. I am just so passionate about leveraging what we know about the science of these different ingredients, whether they're spices, herbs, particular foods, to really create delicious meals that can truly reduce our disease burden as a society. So I really would love to do like a food as medicine cookbook. I mean, the Spice Spice Baby cookbook was my first attempt at that. It was like, here's all the spices, the benefits, and here's a hundred ways you can use them. But really getting deeper into the functional benefits of certain foods, combining them, you know, like you said, um, your mom knowing how to combine certain things, like really combining certain ingredients in a functional way to create recipes that will say substantially reduce your risk for cancer or diabetes or some kind of like food as medicine cookbook that is anything but clinical and dry. Like I would love for it to still be like vibrant and delicious. So even if you don't care about disease, you would still buy it <laughs> and cook from it. Um, so yeah, I think that's next. And the platform will always be this overarching idea that like what we eat has so much power to really enhance our health and vitality. And as long as I can keep, you know, creating around that theme and educating, at least for now, that feels like where I want to be. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.